Hey, everybody, this is Charles Hain here with the No Film School podcast for the week of June 26th, 2020, otherwise known as COVID Shutdown Week 15, solidly in the teenage weeks here. I'm here with the editor in chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. No Film School writer, Michelle De La Tour. I'm still stuck on the fact that it's week 15. Hi, everybody. <laughs> I, I If I didn't do this podcast every week, I wouldn't know what week it was. This week on the podcast, we're talking about some news from Apple that is going to force every filmmaker to have to make a decision in the next two years, and we're going to prepare you for that decision. We're talking about the decision everyone is facing as they decide what movie is going to be their first movie when they go back, and the dilemmas movie theaters are going through about how to help you get back in movie theaters. We're going to be talking about, you know what, I'm going to say one of the top filmmakers of the 20th century, like a wildly diverse career, but I love some of his movies so much. Joel Schumacher passed away this week, and we're going to talk about an in-memoriam for Joel Schumacher. And then we've got the return of Ask No Film School with a really great question about some of the strategy behind starting your career. All that this week on the No Film School podcast. So this week, our top story this week, usually we save tech, st- tech news for a little deeper in, but this was really the top story for filmmakers of the week. And it is Apple had their worldwide developer conference, which the WWDC, Apple at the worldwide developer conference, they roll out a whole bunch of stuff every year. It's usually a big place for some announcements. It's usually one of the few places. A lot of times Apple loves to do this thing where they announce stuff and they're like, and it's in stores today. And, you know, or it like it ships Tuesday. That's Apple's big thing. Worldwide Developer Conference, the June announcements are one of the few places where Apple really feels comfortable talking about the future, which is something Apple does not do very much. And there's a lot of reasons why that we're going to talk about in this conversation. But uh, Apple announced that they are moving to their own silicon. Um, So what does that mean? So in the center of your computer, there's a central processing unit, a CPU. And the vast majority of like desktop and laptop computers run on what we call um, x86. You'll, you'll hear this sometimes called Intel, and Intel makes x86 hardware, but you can also get uh, x86 processors from people like AMD. So I'm just going to say x86 because it's easier. Ma- Every x86 processor in a Mac has always been Intel. So you can think of it as either way, but we're just going to say x86. It's the chip, right? It's the chip architecture. A specific piece of software has to be written for a specific architecture of chip. So, you know, uh, a program that might run it's on a Kind of like fi- the, the brain in the body to some extent? It It's the brain in the body, but it's like different... Yeah, the brain and the body have to work together. I think that is a good one, right? Like you can't take a leopard brain and put it in a gorilla body. Because they have to, you know, a leopard brain is designed to control these fast moving, fast twitch legs. And, you know, they're probably not as good at strength. And a gorilla brain is good with the strength and the eating of the bananas. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think that's probably a good analogy. So x86 has been the architecture for Apple since 2006. And they've announced that they're moving to a new architecture. And they never said the name of the architecture in the presentation once. Someone else pointed it out. I, I caught this from someone else's blog post. I didn't notice it myself. And in the blog post, they pointed out either you're a nerd and you knew what they were saying and they didn't have to say it, or you weren't a nerd and you didn't care. <laughs> and they're very right. Apple's moving to a new architecture called ARM, A-R-M. Um, and basically everyone, as soon as they announced it, everyone who knows what ARM is was like, oh, you're moving to ARM. And if you don't know what ARM is, you don't care. 
pretend that I, I, I'm one of these people who doesn't know, but now I want to know. Everyone listening to this podcast owns an ARM processor, every single one of you, and it's in your phone. ARM is a new architect is a different architecture. It's not new. It came about in the late nineties, but it's a different architecture. It was an architecture that was designed specifically for low power use. Apple was actually one of the original designers. It was Apple and Motorola and another company whose name slips my mind teamed up to initially create ARM and then Apple sold out of it, but has continued to support it in, um, iPod and then iPhone. Um, and so ARM, ARM architecture are mobile chips. They're specifically or were originally designed for um, giving you a lot of power without a lot of electricity use. And that's really appealing in a phone, right? You're never going to have an iPhone with an Intel chip in it, or let's be clear, an x86 chip, because Intel actually briefly made, or an Intel subsidiary made ARM chips for a while. So that's why I'm trying to avoid saying Intel. An x86 right. chip is just going to suck too much battery power. You're not going to run your phone on x86. It's just not going to work. You want your phone to run on ARM chips. And actually, what's interesting is when the first iPad came out, everyone was like, okay, it's going to be this massive screen. Are they going to be able to do it on ARM? Are they going to have to use x86? And obviously, Apple's always run uh, ARM chips in the iPads, and they've gotten really powerful in the last couple of years. And there have been rumors going around for about eight years that Apple was going to make the switch from Intel to ARM. And this is a very, very long time for rumors to be around. Uh, Microsoft actually came out with a Surface laptop a few years ago that ran on ARM. So Microsoft had successfully ported Windows to run on ARM. Um, one of the Surfaces um, is ARM targeted. And you have to recompile the entire operating system to work on a different architecture. So, you know, if I have if I have a 2013 Mac and I buy a 2015 Mac because they're both x86, I can assume all the programs that run on my 2013 Mac are going to run on my 2015 Mac. But if I have a 20 if I have an x86 Mac and I buy one of these new ARM Macs that are about to come out this fall, I'm not going to be sure that all of my software is going to work on it. Now, Apple has completely rewritten the operating system, Mac OS. It's no longer called OS X, it's Mac OS. Mac OS is now completely dual native. It can run perfectly on Intel and it's been compiled to work on ARM and it's supposed to be super fast. And all of the demos- This was called Big, Big Sur? Uh, yeah, the new one, Big Sur. The Big Sur, the new OS that's coming out this fall. I suspect you'll be- installing a different version on ARM or Intel, and it will automatically detect if it's ARM or Intel. I don't think it'll be the same software. It'll be a different code base, but they'll be identical to each other. One for Intel, one for ARM is my assumption as to how that's going to work. I can't imagine that they're going to, because there'd be a lot of wasted code that you wouldn't need that would just take up space on your system if they made it so it worked natively on both. So probably what happens is when you run an installer, it's going to automatically detect what system you're running and it's going to install the correct version of Big Sur. Before we move to where I think the what what we know the advantages are to ARM, the new chip architecture, is one of them, because I feel like part of it is going to be the, the power capability, but the fact that our many of us and our Mac products like live tethered to electricity at this point. Is that also part of what's happening? Is that we're needing so much power to run these machines that they want to shift them to something that's more economical in that sense? I would be shocked if Apple doesn't run at least one ad about this in global warming. Like, 
I would be disappointed actually if Apple doesn't run at least one ad of if everyone in America shift shifted over to an ARM processor, we'd be able to shut down four coal plants or something. Like, yeah, I mean, one of the big things is it's going to use less electricity. So that means longer time on battery. So when you're unplugged from your wall, you sh- you're going to be able to run on your battery longer because it's taking less power from those batteries. And it's going to mean you're drawing less battery power when you're plugged in. So both of those are, are huge benefits of ARM. On top of that, the processor, the way the architecture is designed, because they're taking less, less physical power, they run a lot cooler. So that thing where your laptop gets really hot in your lap, that thing where if you've, you, some of you might not have experienced this, but most of us have, where you start cranking on some heavy video thing and those fans start really whirring in your laptop, like things like that should happen less often with ARM than they do with x86. And yeah, I mean, you know, I'm sure there'll be an ad laying out how much, but you know, like let's say you're a post house that owns 20 iMacs and you had 20 iMacs that are all Intel and you just said, okay, this year we're refreshing to do iMacs and we refresh to ARM. I bet that's noticeable in your power bill. I bet that is non-negligible when you look at how much you power you burn one year to the next, um, all other things being equal. So one of the things we have in the story we have up about this, so one of the stories on No Film School is that Apple promises that three 4K video streams can be seamlessly played back at full resolution on this new processor. Well, which is interesting because that's something that you could already do on a Mac Pro, for instance. So what I think they're bragging is not just that it's three 4K streams. I think it's three 4K streams on a 13-inch MacBook Pro, I think. I think their demo was, you know this is the kind of stuff we can do because all of the demos were run. They've already built, there's actually available today. You can already buy a sort of Mac mini that -hmm. has been set up with this new arm processor. It's a dev kit, which means it's only for developers. You have to apply to be part of the dev program to be able to buy it. But if you're a developer and you want to test your software, you need something to test on and they have this out. And I was looking at the specs of the new Mac mini. And I think those specs are going to be sort of the entry level ish, you know, um, that'll be, so I, I think what they were more bragging about was look, this machine that's like under two grand is going to be able to play three right. tracks mo- of a mobile machine essentially. And the other thing, the other feature that, that we wrote up already was that, um, your iPhone and iPad, pad apps will be running on your power book or your power mac right is that also like well power macs haven't existed for i was gonna say right, sorry, 20 years <laughs> sorry dating ourselves I'm there macbook yeah. pro your old your old man is showing your macbook pro yeah um yeah well and that's the other thing is that you know using what do they call catalyst catalyst because your iPad already runs on this architecture, you're going to be able to see a lot more seamless back and forth between your iPad apps and your iPad apps are just going to be able to open on your laptop back and forth seamlessly because it's going to be the same architecture for both. Um, because iPad iOS and iPad OS have always just been scaled down full versions of Mac OS. They've always just been I- Mac OS with parts taken out. So fundamentally, since it's the same operating system and the same system architecture, the software should be able to move back and forth, which is going to have some really interesting professional applications, I think, for a lot of people. Like, I can certainly see scenarios where I'm out in the field, I'm using Artemis. It's a wonderful viewfinder app. It lets you use your built-in phone to take these shots and build these PDFs and do sort of photo boards when you're on location. But it's always trapped in my iPad or my phone. And then I always have to, like, export a PDF to get it to my desktop to work bigger. It'd be great 
if I could then fire up Artemis on my phone and like tweak settings and rearrange things on my bigger laptop and not have to do it on my little phone, that would be awesome. And we're going to start to see stuff like that, which is going to actually make life easier for a filmmaker, being able to move that program back and forth, have the bigger screen when you need it, and then go back to your phone when you don't. That's going to be really slick. This news made me have two questions that I think I know the answers to, but I'm curious if I know what they are. So when can we expect Max to have the new ARM architecture? And I've read two years, question mark? Two years. The first ones will come out this fall. Okay. And it will be a two-year transition process to them all having it. And that's actually kind of long. So in it 2006, is. for context... This is the fourth time Apple's done this. In 88 to 94, they moved from Motorola to PowerPC. And then they moved from PowerPC to Intel. This is the fourth switch. It's the third time they've made the switch. So they moved Motorola to PowerPC. And then they moved from PowerPC to Intel chips in 2006. In June of 2006, they announced they were making the switch. By June of 2007, the entire lineup was Intel. It's a two-year process this time. You're going to get the, the first laptops will be available in six months. And I think the first release is the 13-inch MacBook Pro and the 24-inch iMac will both be available. But I believe the indications are that you'll still be able to buy them in either flavor. You'll be able to buy an ARM or an Intel Hmm. initially. And then over the course of the next two years, they will move the whole platform over until eventually everything will be ARM. So if you were in love, for example, with the 13-inch model that just came out, should you wait to buy something new later on this fall or should you do it now? Well, so this is a huge question. Yes. This was this is sort of the meat of the matter, especially because just a week ago they came out with a new graphics card update for the uh 2016 the we 2019 just talking about 16 inch. Yeah. And the reasoning and the value, yeah. Yeah. And and how tricky that is a decision that they must have made in the middle of their release cycle. And now it's not only the middle of a release cycle, it's the middle of a release cycle where we don't know like Will there be a 2020 16 inch? If there is, apparently it will still be Intel because the 13 inch and the 24 inch are first. So we might not see an ARM 16 mm-hmm. inch until a year from now. The The heaviest hardware will take the longest. So I think in the fall, there'll be a 13 inch ARM and a 13 inch Intel that you can choose between. But I think if you're thinking about Mac Pro, it's pro- when they say two years, it's probably two years until they think that there will be strong enough Apple ARM processors to really be considered pro machines. And so I think you're relatively safe. If you were debating a pro, um, I think you're probably good to get two years out of your pro at least. The other thing to remember here is this is a much different transition than the transition in 2006. The transition in 2006 was going from a smaller ecosystem into a bigger one, meaning everything, you know, like if you guys weren't alive back then, back in the day, you used to go to the store and you would see like, you know, there was a whole different software section for Mac because software that ran on the Mac wouldn't run on the PC and software that ran on the PC wouldn't run on the Mac and you couldn't run Parallels or Boot Camp or any of that stuff. And so everyone knew when they were moving over to Intel, it was like, oh, now with just Parallels or Boot Camp, any PC app will run on my Mac. That was then the era when it was truly like uh, you were a one or the other. Like, oh I'm yeah, a Mac person, yeah. and I'm a PC person. And if you were, you know, growing up in the '90s and you used a Mac, or you brought one of those Mac book power books, excuse power me, books. <laughs> to college or whatever, then or that candy-colored plastic Steve Jobs iMac, the first yeah. one, remember that? Yes, all that stuff. That um, 
Yeah, it was one world or the other. Like you used completely different apps. There was no crossover. And as we've seen for the last 10 years or so, like when there's a new Photoshop update, it's available for Mac and PC the same day because it's much simpler for devs to do that. Whereas it used to be like one might come out for Mac and then PC six months or eight months later or vice versa. Um, So we're moving away from that to a place where we're going to see a lot more of that with mobile apps. We're going to see a lot more of like, oh, available for Mac and iPad on September 4th or whatever, but we're going to have a lot less of that overlap with the PC world where it's simultaneously going to work. Although there is a platform called Rosetta that's still going to let you work with um, backwards compatible apps the same way in 2006, if you had an older piece of software, you could launch Rosetta, which would sort of work as a translator um, to the older software. But the tricky thing is that, you know, they claim Rosetta 2, the Rosetta we're going to see from Intel to ARM is super fast and you won't even notice it. But as filmmakers, you know, we're the most demanding Filmmakers and musicians are the most demanding on our hardware. I'm sure there are scientists who are more demanding, but of the people that listen to the podcast, we put our computers through a lot and it's, and we use a lot of different tools. The big worry with this shift isn't all the big players. Final Cut Pro, there's going to be an ARM and an Intel version, and they're going to be seamless and perfect and great. Adobe is going to be on board. They already have Lightroom for the iPad. They're going to have great Photoshop for the iPad. It's going to work great on the Mac. Like, Adobe's going to be down. Blackmagic's going to be on board. Um, who also is an avid media composer. We'll catch up a couple months later after everybody else, maybe. Um, so, like, the big players will work. The problem gets in with, like, the billion other little apps we all use all the time. You know, like, Neat Video. I love the Neat Video noise correction algorithm. I use Magic Bullet Denoiser all the time. I use the built-in noise correction in DaVinci Resolve all the time. But sometimes there's something where Neat Video just looks the best. Neat Video is a small company. And um, maybe they will have an ARM version out immediately, or maybe it'll take them a year because their devs have other priorities. And those are the things filmmakers really have to think through. Um, You know, I remember a lot of filmmakers kept sort of an original PowerPC Mac around. I, you know, at my post house, we didn't get rid of our PowerPC Mac until 2010. But I remember by about 2009, we were like, okay, there's nothing we still need that for. Which means in 2007, 2008, there were still things that that PowerPC Mac were, was was better for than every everything else. That like there was some piece of software we were like, oh, all right, put it on the you know the PowerPC is still the thing that runs that well. Um, we might not even gotten rid of it until 2011, so we hung on to it for a long time. So I think a lot of filmmakers are going to have to sort of navigate that process of you know, do I need to keep an old machine around? We're all really going to be looking to how good Rosetta is. Because if Rosetta is great, if Rosetta is as good as the demo was, then you know what? Maybe we're just going to all jump right into ARM. I mean, I'm certainly considering it um, because I know that Apple is going to be putting, even if Apple is going to spend two years simultaneously developing Mac OS for both Intel and ARM, you're going to know their heart's really in ARM. Their heart's really in their own silicon. They're going to do the coolest stuff there. So I'm going to, I'm probably going to switch over as soon as I can, but I'm going to be nervous about some of my old favorite apps that I'm, that I'm attached to that might not have replicants in the new universe, or at least might not have them quickly. All right. Up next, movie theaters are starting to talk about reopening. And there's been some drama about AMC trying to stay out of politics and by trying to stay out of politics, wading into (laughs) politics. Um, There's also been a lot of really interesting reports of people interviewing 
movie theater owners and marketers about like, how do you create the, the feeling of safety? How do you make it? You know, one, one thing I thought was really interesting and very true is that, you know, movie theaters aren't a airport, like an airport, everybody wants it to look as safe as possible. You want to see the scanners. You want to see the, like you, you want the whole thing, but like a movie theater is an escape. So like, you know, the same way that like, no one's really excited to go to a movie theater with like, metal detectors you don't really want a movie theater that has like all this taped off floors and tenting and you know you want the masks to be subtle you want to create the idea that you can forget about the world for two hours by going to the movie theater which makes it a much different task to make it safe while still making it inviting which i thought was a really interesting insight uh from one of the marketers this is just a mic this is one of the ways in which the crazy events of the world around us are playing out on the microcosmic stage, this microcosmic word of our community, of the filmmaking and film watching community. Um, I'm just even in the comment sections on the post where we just reported this story, basically. Uh, I mean, with some, you know, opinion and spin, of course, but there is just so much uh, passion <laughs> about this issue, about being required to wear a mask or whether it's safe or not, or the dangers and why don't you just wear a hazmat suit everywhere you go? And I, I find this whole thing to be um, just, you know, the state, the state of California is right now requiring people to wear masks. I think in public. That, yeah, right. right. In public. Um, I think that that should be a good indicator to individuals and to companies that this is important and not just the state of California wanting to control you in some weird way. I just think that, that, that there's a lot of, I, I don't understand the resistance, I guess. Well, I mean, so like I, you know, I don't like wearing shoes and like, you know, I used to walk barefoot around Los Angeles quite a bit, but I always kept some flip flops with me. I like that you said LA and not New York. I mean, there's really can't do it there. I mean, I will also walk barefoot around New York, but I didn't uh, want people to be terrified for me. Um, <laughs> but I keep I kept a fair these little fold up flip flops in my bag because you know if a sh- if a store had a no shirt, no shoes, no service policy, I respect that store's ability to have that policy. So I'd, I'd pop on some flip flops, walk into the store, do whatever business, I, getting wheatgrass juice or kombucha or whatever Los Angeles thing I was getting, and then um, I remember one time I was going to a friend's house to chop wood and I was like walking around silver, like barefoot with an ax and uh, this drunk guy like wandered up to me and found that to be like the most amazing thing ever. He and, probably uh, still tells that story. I would. Does. Um, you know, it's funny you're talking about new sh- no shirt, no shoes, just because I was speaking to one of our other writers and tech editor, Darren James, about, <laughs> about this subject. And he was just saying, for so long, we all accepted the no shirt, no shoes policy. Why is this a, a line too far? <laughs> it's like I hadn't thought about it compared to no shirt, no shoes, but it, it really isn't that much different, right? Well, except it is and it isn't. First off, every time I had to put on those shoes, I resented the store a little. I did it because I believe in civilization. But like, I was like, come on. We, we We were barefoot in nature for millions of years. I was a hippie. I admit it. But also, I think we should all wear masks. I wear my mask when we go in public. I get it. But like, 
you know, I just got an email from my child's daycare that when they reopen, all the teachers are going to wear masks. And like, my daughter's too young to understand what's going on. And I just think it's going to weird her out to be around all these teachers all day with masks on. So I get why people are weirded out by it. You, you make a good point. It's not comfortable. It's new. Nobody, I don't think anybody loves the masks. Am I wrong about no, that? No one likes like, it. Like even Batman covers his entire body, but not that part. Like he, that's the <laughs> one part he keeps open. But I don't get why people, well- <laughs> Okay, I get that nobody likes it. I get that it's not convenient, but I don't get why people are so aggressive about it and, and yeah. aggressive about the government. The government and a lot of major businesses are all asking us to do this. There's a reason. It's not just because they want to push us around. Um, and AMC, as far as the issue of this story, so context, AMC initially said they didn't want to get political, like you said. Um, this is another example of where, uh, to me, uh, a company demonstrates that they don't really have politics at all. They just want to do the thing that will keep them making money. And so AMC thought, well, we want to make sure we don't alienate anybody. And this is an issue. So we're going to stay away from it. And as soon as they did that, there was all this backlash. Like the, the backlash was swift and strong. And then they were like, whoa, 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 wait a second. Uh, we do have a stance on this and it's exactly what you want it to be, right? Because that's always what happens. They don't have a stance until it becomes a business issue. They don't want to put themselves out there in any way to run the risk of, of, of losing business, right? That's the only thing that matters to them. They don't, they don't really care one way or another. To me, all of this is not a business issue. It's a It's a health and a business issue. The second that AMC has a positive case and they're movie theater, they are going to have to shut down. So it was interesting for me when they first came out to say, we're not going to require it because the second, this is, I guess this is what I think about in terms of the grocery stores and the restaurants too, is the second they have a positive case of their staff, then it's all going to come crashing down. Yeah, and that's it, kind of the gamble they're willing to take. And, and that's, that's like, I have a couple of <laughs> thoughts about how maybe they could make money alternatively if they weren't, you know, as opposed to opening theaters in this way. But that's where yeah. I feel like the comparison to shoes is, I understand, shoes may have a health issue because of a violation of a health code or something, but you're not passing a potentially deadly virus from people to person to person in the store, like by not wearing shoes. And so <laughs> that, I mean, at least I hope not. And, um, and so it's it's entangled, you know. And yeah, totally. Here we I, are. I just think that the business. So it might be hard. So someone two weeks after being at an AMC gets coronavirus. How do they know necessarily, unless it's the only exposure they had that they got it when they were at AMC? As far as employees yeah, go, that's a different that's matter. But I but I do think also these businesses are thinking more like immediate return and yeah. how quickly can I get people through the doors to my movie? And if I tell them they have to wear a mask, are 50% of them going to not want to come? Because let's be honest, it's a hard, like the theater industry wasn't exactly booming. Like that, like it was, it was faced with a lot of challenges prior to this. Maybe parts of it were booming and they were finding ways, but you know, this is a, there's, really good reasons to stay at home and stream things. And a lot of stuff is going to go right to streaming. And so if you're AMC, you might be thinking, we want to reopen, but boy, we don't want anybody to not want to show up. And as soon as they saw that by <laughs> the calculation was a little off, that like they made people feel 
less safe about showing up by not requiring the mask. They're like, oh, no, no, wait a second. Uh, yes, require mask. Yes, require mask. Because that's the problem for them, right? It's an immediate, like, I want to make sure people show up. I think that, like you said in the intro, Charles, to all of this, the question, and I want to put it back to both of you guys, is like, even with requiring masks, how do we feel about going to a movie theater? Like, it's just, we come, this has come up a few times. We've talked about it with Tenant uh, being coming out in July, but like every, every week, I think that we kind of re-examine this. Do you feel safe? Would you do it? I feel like I have the same response I had a few weeks ago, which is probably not. Although I don't know what the filtering system or the, I don't think that they're able to filter the air. So you're sitting inside with other people for several hours. How long is running time of tenant? A long time, I assume, the runtime for um, for tenant right now. So you're sitting indoors with other people for a long period of time. I, it's you know uh, what I, I would roll the dice on. No, have you have you guys <laughs> ever caught a movie on like its last Thursday in theaters? Yeah, that's fun. And you're like, oh my god, I have this entire movie theater, and it's me and that old couple. Although now I'm probably the same age as that old couple. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, I saw Fury, that amazing Brad Pitt tank movie, at like four in the afternoon. It's the last Thursday in theaters while waiting to get my car out of the shop, and it was amazing. And uh, you know, we we have these ticketing apps that let us like keep a watch on the theaters, and like obviously my life isn't that flexible. I got a kid, but like I could see myself like flicking open a thing and being like, you know what, two tickets have sold at Tenet this afternoon. Yeah, maybe I'll be the third person in the theater for Tenet. That could be really interesting um, because yeah, every study I read keeps saying duration is a big factor. Yeah, there's this kind of middle ground that no one and I, you can correct me if I'm wrong here about the cost of a of a movie. So I feel like the video on demand or switching from in, you know theaters into video on demand. One of the challenges is that stuff is so expensive. You know, you go re- try and rent King of Staten Island right now. It's 20, 20 bucks. It's the same cost as seeing it in a theater. And what I haven't seen is anyone bring that down enough for everyone to watch. Are all theaters capped at the same price? Or can AMC make some money by making new releases cheaper into your house? Can someone do that? Because I'm curious. I, I'm, what I don't know is whether they're looking at their profits and losses and saying, okay, we have to open because we're losing so much money or if they've explored those kind of, in, I assume they have, interim benefits to, to changing the cost of the video on demand. Hmm. I don't know the answers to those questions, but they're good questions. Also, uh, if they just send me movie theater popcorn along with the rental, maybe we'll get somewhere. <laughs> I'm of the opinion that AMC and theater chains like it are just really up against it right now. And yeah. as soon as they their phase comes where they can open, they want to open. And just like a lot of businesses, but but maybe more than many, they are are trying to find the, the quickest way to get people in and out um, and spending money again. And it's it's got to be one of the tougher ones because of the circumstances. Because look, watching stuff at home is like one of the things you can for sure do. Um, during all of this and continue to do. And the people making these this content are going to make it possible for you to do that. Like So, so uh, with the exception maybe of Christopher Nolan. So I think that that is a, uh, 
you know, that's part of why when No Film School puts up a story about this, there's a lot of really passionate people who are angry about us saying something like, hey, it's not safe for them to let us go in there without a mask because they're like, no, we want to go to the movies. Like this is the group of people who really wants to go to the movies and wants to feel safe doing it. And I think sometimes what we want emotionally can get crossed with what maybe reality is. We want to see it through a certain lens, no pun intended, the lens of how quickly can I get back into a movie theater and do one of my favorite things in the world safely. And if you're sitting here telling me you're going to die because AMC is not requiring you to wear a mask, like, yeah, that's going to trigger people for sure. I don't know. I don't think I would feel safe doing it just because I'm trying to I'm trying to limit the things I do that expose me to risk. And that just seems like one that's easy to cross off the list for a while, right? Yeah. Which hurts because it's in so many times in my life, it's been the most vital thing. And yet it is one that in times of safety or times of lessened safety, you can cut. Yes. Yes. I did not realize that the press screening of Mulan that I went to on March 7th would be my last movie in a theater and my longest unofficial embargo. So that's been (laughs) 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 I mean, some of the press releases came out a long time ago, but we hadn't released one. And so we had been asked to hold it forever. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Moving on. We have some sad news. I'm sure many of you, most of you have already heard, but we wanted to take a moment to honor the passing of the director, Joel Schumacher. Uh, Schumacher's career was long and varied. Uh, Most of you know that he started in the costume department, but I hadn't actually put two and two together and realized that he started in the costume department in Woody Allen movies. He did the costuming on Play It As Lays and Interiors before moving over to directing. Um, Famous for so many amazing movies, Falling Down, um, Tigerland, Lost Boys. He also directed two Batman movies, Batman Forever, which was a huge hit, and Batman and Robin, which... Was less of a hit. Was less of a hit. (laughs) Um, Also known uh, for its costumes, let's be honest. And the nipples. The first of the nipple gates was Batman and Robin. Also, also, I got to say, and people are going to think I'm kidding, but sort of responsible for bringing us Colin Farrell with Tigerland and Phone Booth. And like Colin Farrell, one of my favorite working actors, and really glad of the like early mentorship of Joel Schumacher bringing him to us. I just want to say a couple things about Joel Schumacher here. Uh, Growing up in the 80s and 90s, you certainly would have been aware, and a movie fan, you would have been aware of Joel Schumacher. Uh, He wasn't always the most beloved director by people who like movies that are... um, he, He did some stuff that was a little big, shall we say. Sometimes there was a little camp even. But I have a couple of things I want to mention that, uh, and he, he was a very good director and it's really cool that he came from the costume department because he, it's always interesting to know where a director, like a main a big time director gets started. Um, mini driver had a tweet about Joel Schumacher. He was, everybody in the industry who worked with him had really positive things to say about him, by the way, people really liked him, but this is what she tweeted. She said, Joel Schumacher was the funniest, most hilarious director I ever worked on. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. Once on set, an actress was complaining about me within earshot, how I was dreadfully over the top, parentheses, I was. Joel barely looked up from his New York Times and said, oh, honey, no one ever paid to see under the top. 
<laughs> that was pretty good. And that was very Joel Schumacher. And then I want to say, I want to bring up this other quote, which I, which we posted on the no film school, um, social media channels, because I just think it's amazing. Um, and it's from him. And he said, I think I'm one of the luckiest people that ever lived. I got my dream. I got it so much bigger than ever. Even I could have dreamed it. You know, I'm just a kid whose parents died very young, who was on his own and grew up behind a movie theater before TV. And I wanted to tell those stories and look what happened. And I like that because obviously it's a great quote, but I think he really got it. Like, I think he got that it was so great to be where he was and and be in the position he was and do the things he did and have fun with it. And I don't think he took it too seriously. And I think he did really good work. And I think it's a reminder that like, yeah, I didn't love his Batman movies. And so what? <laughs> like, like, I think there's a certain part of it that's like, um, maybe you don't, maybe not everything everybody does is your cup of tea, right? It's not personal. And he loved what he did and he did it with, with a joy that was apparent. And I think that, um, I think that's cool. I think he had a, an amazing run and I think he totally got it. I don't know how else to put it. I think it's important that a filmmaker makes movies I hate. Like everybody has done something. If you keep pushing yourselves, you're eventually, nobody's going to line up perfectly with everybody, right? Like one of the things I love about Soderbergh uh, or the Coen brothers or Sofia Coppola is they keep trying wildly different things and they don't rest on their laurels. And like with all of them and with Joel Schumacher, there's something where I'm like, I don't know that that worked. I don't know that I quite bought that. Batman and Robin don't know that I quite bought it, but like falling down is totally in the canon. Like falling down, like became a part of the culture falling down is like something we're all like aware of and like has like one of the great all time Michael Douglas performances. And like, that's enough. I, I agree. I would always rather see someone. I think one of the hard parts of the way the industry works is it's very, is it's tough for someone to fail and continue, but it's so important. And I love people who take risks. And I'll always say like, I don't mind that George Lucas made a bunch of like really flawed, like severely flawed Star Wars movies. I'd so much rather see his crazy ideas that don't work than see things that just don't feel innovative or, or unique. Um, so I'm with you there. Michelle, do you have any Joel Schumacher thoughts? <laughs> besides Batman, besides about Batman? Um, there's two things. One, if I had tried to list the number of people that Joel Schumacher helped become, helped into this industry or, or that he worked with, I'm not sure that I could. The list would be insane. And so when I think about that work, I think about the, the breadth of work, but also the amount of people that he impacted or helped in their career is incredible. I think also Batman Forever, Batman and Robin, however people felt about them, had super unique visions and tone. That's what I want, you know, and something that's I think what a lot of people want and what they're seeing is, oh, I know who did this film or I can tell it's this person because of X, Y, and Z reason. And when you see the little tiny, you know, or tiny or large fingerprints on something that someone directed. And so, however we feel about it, uh, we can see the influences of him on it. So in that way, I think it's kind of a success in that way is, is depth. That's definitely a, that's his film and we know it's his and there we are. <laughs> There's one thing I want to say before we move on. Cause I realized we're not doing deep cuts today and I was going to save one. I was not going to mention this because I thought, Oh, a perfect deep cut. He directed A Time to Kill, which is, uh, uh, it's, I think it's a John Grisham book. And I think it was like mid-90s. And it was definitely the arrival of Matthew McConaughey. 
Yeah. He had been in some movies, but it was the one that like made him a star. And that movie has like a, just an incredible cast. It's weird how many stars they packed into that movie who would launch their own movies many times over. Um, it's, it's a really, I think it's a really good movie. He also did The Firm. So he knew that, that subgenre, the legal movie, the courtroom drama. But uh, A Time to Kill is interesting because it deals with issues of justice and race and the South and racism. And this would be a good time to revisit it, I think. I don't know if it feels super dated in some of its viewpoints. I haven't watched it maybe even since I saw it in the theater in 1996 or whatever. But I remember thinking it was very powerful and interesting and thought provoking. And it was also just one of those movies that I think like he did, like you said, with Colin Farrell, he really made stars shine. You know, he did a good job with that and uh, worth, worth revisiting. All right, from there, we are moving on to an Ask No Film School that was beautifully sent to the Ask No Film School accounts. It's ask at nofilmschool.com. This question comes to us from Noah Mortel to the ask at nofilmschool.com address. Hi, everyone. Do you think starting out on a low budget, should I do a web series or a micro budget feature? I don't know that there's money in a web series, but maybe it can get exposure and I can cut out the mini middleman. However, a micro budget feature could maybe make money. What do you think? Thanks. So I have so many thoughts on this. Specifically, I've done both. Uh, I've done two feature films, one of which for like $10,000, the other of which for like $175,000. I also, just this week, my $10,000 web series just got released on Amazon Amazon Prime. Prime. Nice. So it is here. Salty Pirate (laughs) is on Amazon Prime. So I have lots of thoughts on this. I have thoughts on it in terms of strategy, but I also have thoughts of it on it in terms of life. But I have so many thoughts. I want to let you guys chime in with anything else before I just go on a huge tear. I think that um, the easiest non-answer answer is whatever best way there is to tell the best story you have. Um, I know that those things tend not to be super helpful to people, but um, but format um, some some ideas work better in different formats. Some limitations will help you. Some like I like just like Charles. I've done the feature thing. I've done the series thing. I've seen heat come off both and ultimately fizzle. <laughs> but that's a different story for another day. But I but the the thing is like what's the best way what's going to hook people and cut through the noise and be the story that you have the most energy to finish telling and which format serves that? Because if you if you try to start there, I think you're more likely to finish and feel good about what you've done and catch someone's eye. Some things are great for shorts. Some things are great for features, things meaning ideas. Some things are a great idea for a web series. So, so worry about the idea that you think is best and that you will finish and that you can finish first. That's, that's my thought. I would come at this maybe with two questions. And the two questions I would ask are, is the story best told in little segments or as a one big piece? larger piece or is this a what i'm going to call a 
closed or an open story? So is it a story that if you could keep doing a web series and you wanted to add more episodes, assuming that's why we're, how we're def- defining a web series, and I'm going to ask that question at the tail end of mine. If you were doing a web series and you said, okay, in the future, maybe I'll add more episodes. So is this story something that would lend itself to multiple episodes? Kind of an open, I would call it open-ended, if you will, story, places to go, or is it closed? With the, with the rare exception, an indie feature is an individual unit of thing. It is a story with a beginning, middle, and end. And when it is done, it is like Swingers. And like, they never made a Swingers 2. Like, Swingers 1 was like that perfect low-budget movie of like, the characters were engaging and it moved, the plot moved along. And it was like, you know, and you just like, you wanted to watch it. And it became a hit and it broke out and it made all these people's careers. But it's a closed story. Like Charles, the you just made, Charles, you just made a huge mistake by pitching Swingers 2. And now someone listening to this is going to make it happen. And we're going to see I actually think, old Vince Vaughn. Is it Swung? Is Vince it called Swung? pitches it to John Favreau about once every other year. <laughs> and I think Favreau has been saying no for 20 years. Swing and a miss. You swing and a, I'm going to keep doing these jokes. Okay. Swing and a miss on the swingers too. Oh boy. Yeah. But, okay. Sorry. But, and then the, the, the idea with the web series is like, oh, well, we'll go shoot season one and then maybe we'll find financing for season two. Yeah. You know, and like it's characters. It's So it's open versus closed, which is, I think the good breakdown. And so I think George's point and your point too, of like, what story do you want to tell? And then once you know the story you want to tell, you'll figure out what format to put it in, I think is good. I am curious if there's no way to, I'm curious where this person is in terms of writing or, or organizing this material. Cause there's no reason you can, you know, you can start writing something as a web series and realize halfway through that it actually it's better as a feature, or you could start writing a feature and realize halfway through that it's better as a web series. So I think that's important to keep in mind probably is approaching everything is when you start organizing and writing, it may take a different form. At least that happens to me sometimes. It's like, actually halfway through this might be stronger as X, Y, or Z and that's okay. Well, and I mean, Sopranos was supposed to be a movie, right? And then it became Sopranos. The other guys, the amazing Shane Black movie, was supposed to be a TV pilot and then didn't get picked up as a pilot. So we made a movie. That movie's great. So you write the thing and you see. You let the characters tell you what the characters want to be. But I don't think that's the answer you're looking for. I think the answer you're looking for is strategy, is which is going to be a smarter move to move your career further along fastest, which I get. We're all impatient. We would all like to be at the next level already. We're all like, why have we not made X already? You know, we're all like, that's a thing built into humans, not just Not just me that asked that question. That's very good. Um, Well, no, I mean, there's a great economist named Bob Galenson at the University of Chicago who wrote a book about this because he was 36 and he hadn't published anything significant yet. And he was feeling all this pressure because all those famous economists had published super young and he hadn't yet. And so we did a study of like what age people do all of their most important work. And like how comforting is it to know that it's not just artists who worry about this. Like economists also worry about like, am I hitting my targets? Are all these famous young economists, but then they died young in car accidents. Like Actually, Jason Hellerman wrote a great story for, no F- for us on No Film School about <clears throat> how you can actually come out at various ages and break out. There's infographics in there and everything. We'll, we'll include it in the show notes. So I get the urge to strategy. I totally understand it. I remember asking someone when I was at film school, like, what's the smart strategy? Like, how should I do this? I remember one of my teachers being like, well, you know, you got to start with a horror or a comedy. They're easy to finance. You can get one made quickly. And, you know, like, even though horror and comedy weren't 
either of my favorite genres. I don't dislike them. I actually love them, but they weren't like the thing I wanted. I went to film school to make, but like I tried to follow the advice and write a horror film because I wanted to be strategic, which I, I don't think strategy works. I think you should do the thing you're passionate about. I think make the thing you're most excited to make and put it in the format that it belongs in. But I will say this first off, your idea that there might be more money in an independent feature than a web series is actually kind of backwards. So yes, independent features can get like bought and distributed, but there's so many low budget independent features that if you don't have like a celebrity in yours, you're going to have a very, very hard time getting distribution for it. And you're going to have a very hard time selling it online because there's a big buy-in. You're looking at something, you know, the online marketplace, unless there's a known element, unless it's like, oh, McConaughey's in this. It's very rare we're willing to spend 15 bucks, 9.99 to watch a two-hour movie in which we recognize none of the actors. Unless, you know, like Soderbergh is out here right now mentoring the um, Under the Dark Skies, Under the Skies. There's a there's a film out yes. right now where Soderbergh's endorsing it. And I'm like, okay, so I'm going to go watch that because Soderbergh's endorsing it. And I trust his opinion and he's smart and the trailer looks good. But it's really hard. So if you don't get picked up by distribution with a feature, you have an uphill battle if you're going to go self-distribute. What's fun for me is you know, this is my first ever web series. I've never worked in episodic before. I wrote it episodically because I was about to have a baby and I thought episodic fit this story. Like I thought it was stories that characters, like if someone came up with a bag of money and was like, I want to make season two, I, I, I felt like I could write more about these characters. And it was fun to write episodically because it was really fun to break it into cliffhangers and break it into units and be like, you know, in a feature, you're worried about 90 minutes of tension and you're worried on page five. Am I giving them hooks that are going to keep them interested? Is there hope here? Is there fear? Like, what are the characters afraid of? Whereas, like, literally episodic, I was like, oh, I just have to make five minutes entertaining. I can just have like two dudes arguing about whether or not to take this one particular client for three minutes. And if I find it funny, that's an episode. Like, it was so freeing for me to write an episodic because of that. But also, the beauty of episodic is, you know, if you don't get distribution, you can just put it up on Amazon Prime, like my show, Salty Pirate, which is now up on Amazon Prime, or um, Venmo VOD, or Ficto, or you can try and get on Quibi. And what's interesting is, what I've noticed is that there's a lot of people who probably wouldn't have paid $10 for the full two-hour experience who paid like 99 cents for the first episode. Or I give away the first two or three episodes. We've tried that. And then they watch the first two or three episodes. And then some of them catch and watch the whole thing is the theory. I don't know that it always works. I haven't dug into the analytics enough. But like, I still have the thing when I'm on YouTube. If I see a video is 32 minutes, I don't watch it, even though I have watched like five, six-minute videos in a row before on YouTube. There's still that thing in the the internet where I think long playtimes are tough. So I think that web series can be something because people know they can break it up. They can watch it over multiple sections. Episodic is something that can work in that space. So if you think you have characters that you want to continue playing with, and if you like the idea of experimenting a little bit with narrative formats and stuff like that, then yeah, I mean, I think web series can be really great, especially because there's lots of examples of web series where they did a season and then they did a second season with maybe a sponsor and it was a little better. And then they did a third season with two sponsors. It was better. And then it went to a network like that is a thing that happens. I wouldn't pick web series over features for money. I would pick web series over features for for content, but I would also pick it, honestly, I have to say for lifestyle. Um, one of the reasons why I did a web series over a feature for Salty Pirate, because I, I thought maybe Salty Pirate might be a feature. I thought like, oh, maybe I flesh out this B plot and it's a feature. But what I realized was that I was about to have a baby and I directed a feature before and, you know, directing, editing a feature film is a tremendous amount of work. And you're like once a week, you're screening the whole film together and doing notes and is the pace working or the acts working? You're doing test screenings with all these big crowds and everything. And you know, the beauty of it, 
web series was like, I would get a cut from an editor and it was like seven minutes. And it was so easy for me to find seven minutes in my day to like watch it and fill out frame my own notes for my editor and like keep the progress moving. Whereas if it had been a feature film and I was getting like 30 minute acts or 90 minute cuts of the whole thing with a newborn, I was never going to find the time to do it. Like it would have post so many of my friends have done indie features and post have taken two years. It took us two years to get on Amazon prime with salty pirate. Cause we, we gave the festival circuit a year, but we were picture locked six months after we shot your average feature film edits for a year. Even if it's a two hour feature film, your average episode of T of TV, even like a 40 minute episode of TV cuts in nine days. So like, because it's smaller chunks, it's easier to keep moving and keep working. And, and so we were able to like keep the edit pace going. And so I would also consider it for that as like, do you have a full-time job and like other obligations? Well, it might be hard to get that indie feature through post. So many of my friends managed to shoot their indie feature and never finish post. Whereas a web series, it was easier to push through. I would, I just want to add, because you're, you said so much value there, both of you did, but that there was a lot of good stuff in there. And I think I started with a non-answer and I've come around. I've had a three-act structure of my own here. And I have an answer now. I think I think I agree. I think that the answer is to do a web series. <laughs> and I think the reason is like multifaceted, unless your heart burns for the story of the feature, like I said, and it is a feature and it's great and that's great. But if you're in a vacuum and all things being equal, which rarely is the case, look at the direction that content is going in and look at the direction that audiences are going and the way the world is shifting. And it's so hard to get people to focus on any one thing for very long. And it's easier to break through in a place where there's more opportunities and there's more things. And every year, I think the the the, the room in the feature film industry for for opportunities shrinks. If you do a web series, you could be a candidate to work on a TV show. You could be a can- that it lends itself to that. It's a different it's a step in that direction, but feature films, indie features, I love them. I love the feature film and no film school is always going to be about that too. But it's a super crowded space and it's not easy to get those eyeballs. Whereas check out the interview I did with the the Sundance programmer who runs the indie episodic program, which is exactly what we're talking about here. It's people who did episodic content, not even that fits in a web series uh, box. Like you're saying, Michelle, it may be anything that's episodic or open-ended like we spoke about. Um, There's lots of uh, ways that the industry is looking to capitalize on the interest in that sort of content. So I would say if you can do it that way for all the reasons Charles mentions, um, that's the way to go. Um, and also one more thing, because we were talking about people uh, feeling like they failed. Julius Caesar wept at the age of 32 when he saw the statue of Alexander the Great because he thought about how much Alexander the Great had accomplished by that age and how much he hadn't. So even Julius Caesar felt like a failure when he started comparing himself to others. That's a little historian there. I'm showing my old man again, Charles. Comparison is the thief of all joy. There you go. Amen. All right. So that's this week on the No Film School podcast. My pluggable this week, go check out Salty Pirate on Amazon Prime, Vimeo VOD, or uh, the Ficto app, or follow us on Salty Pirate on Instagram. And uh, 
yeah, Black Lives Matter. Uh, protests have continued, even though the media doesn't cover it as much. They are still ongoing, and you should still continue to pay attention to what's going on in your community and get involved. And if you're that dude setting off fireworks in my neighborhood, or let's not be sexist, <laughs> if lady setting off the fireworks in my neighborhood, please stop. I, my wife would really like a full night's sleep. Thank you. This is Michelle De La Tour. You can find me on the Twitter and the Instagram at M-D-E-L-A-T-E-U-R. I'm also curious if you have a quarantine deep cut that you'd like to share with me or the team for deep cuts next time, because I'm interested to hear what people have been finding during their time in quarantine. That's a really cool request. Please let us know. You can email those. Uh, you can email your deep cuts to ask at nofilmschool.com along with your questions. We would love to feature some cool deep cuts. Um, I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. Please like, rate, subscribe, leave a comment. Let us know what you think. Check us out at nofilmschool.com. Lots of great stories. Stuff about Apple. Stuff about the Canon, which is coming soon, the EOS R5, stuff about some Sony stuff that might be coming soon, not to mention we'll keep updating you on everything Quentin Tarantino ever thought about any movie ever. And uh, we love you all and, and check it out. <laughs>